Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and an executive coach, and today I welcome Cheryl Heller to the show. Cheryl, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I am really looking forward to our juicy conversation about social design and how it can really reframe the way we think about work cultures. So I want to dive right in because social design may not be a term that our global audience understands. So help us frame that. Sure. Well, the best way to think about social design is that it's a similar process to that used to create all of the products and the services that we have around us and that have been so important to business and civilization. But that process is applied at a greater scale and, uh, and it's, uh, it's aimed at strengthening human relationships and human agency instead of just making things. It's done uh, with cross-disciplinary teams, so it brings people together and it teaches them how to co-create together and how to establish a vision that's important to everyone. Wonderful. So Cheryl, let's take it a a step deeper. How can social design help us solve problems, especially in businesses or governments or foundations, even social organizations? If you think about the problems we've been trying to solve, the big problems we've been trying to solve for a long time, like climate change and poverty and within the corporate world, disengaged employees, we, we, we keep thinking that uh, doing more of the same is going to change it. What social design does is actually change us. It teaches people to be more resourceful, to be more creative, to see more opportunities. And as I said, most importantly, it teaches us to collaborate and to work together for a common aim. Lovely. Now, I want to tell the audience about the title of your book because it it just makes me smile. And I want to hear from you how you came up with the title. It's called The Intergalactic Design Guide, Harnessing the Creative Potential of Social Design. So, you know, my heart goes to all of these wonderful sci-fi images. Where did Intergalactic come from in in this particular title? Well, it's one quote from the um, wonderful environmental writer and professor David Orr. Ah. Uh, about 25 years ago, he wrote a book called Earth in Mind. And, and he said in it that as human, as Homo sapiens entry into any intergalactic design competition, our industrial civilization would be tossed out at the qualifying round. And I read that about 15 years ago and it stayed with me because at first I thought, huh, he's saying all this is the fault of design. I don't know if that's fair. And then, of course, as I thought about it, it is a design, right? It is humans design and it is unsustainable. It's toxic, all the things we know now. And so when I came to think about writing a book, I wanted it to have a larger perspective, not be limited by silos of consulting or silos of education or silos of design and silos of business. I wanted to look from a a big enough distance so that all of those human-made boundaries disappeared and we could look at the way we act together, the way we think together, and what we're creating or not creating. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that context. That really, really helps. You know, I I so enjoyed the book. And one of the themes that really resonated with me, you talk about 
questions are more important than answers. And typically we reward people who are decisive, but being curious helps you understand the big picture. So tell me how this relates to social design. Social design is driven by inquiry. It, it absolutely is the opposite of privileged people deciding what other people in the world need or ought to have. And the only way that happens is with broad-based curiosity. It's, it's also the antithesis of our culture that loves and rewards experts, you know, that everybody wants to be the smartest guy in the room. And I did, right. not, use, I did not use guy accidentally. Uh, and, and fast decision makers and people who know the answer before the problem is completely, you know, all of that, again, it doesn't work in a world where all of our systems and all of our, our dynamics are interconnected. It requires really paying attention to what's going on. And that takes open-minded curiosity and, and inquiry instead of thinking that we know already. I'm so grateful to hear that you're celebrating curiosity within social design. Help us understand better what's the process like. For example, how can it help improve businesses or organizations? Perhaps you can contextualize it a bit to help the audience further clarify. I will try and you tell me if you okay. need more example. Social design begins by bringing people, cross-disciplinary teams together. Now, within an organization, that could be somebody from sales, somebody from marketing, and somebody from, you know, product development who never get to work together before. And so it starts different conversations. And because it it's already messing around with the structured lines inside an organization, it changes people's relationships. Another characteristic of it is that traditionally innovation or, or production of anything starts with uh, strategy, then research, then ideas, then prototyping, and those are sequential activities. In social design, it's collapsed. And so all those things happen at once. And everyone on the team is there to observe and to learn from reactions. So we talk about making to learn. Social design is based on experimenting, small experiments that de-risk the, um, the investment and, and rely on direct feedback from the people intended for the products. Cheryl, I'm intrigued because I certainly understand design thinking, which is rooted in empathy. And that's the, the first process, the first stage of design thinking. Is there an overlap with social design in the necessity of empathy? There's absolutely an overlap with social design. And design thinking is one of the components. Design thinking came from human-centered design, which came from user-centered design um, with the advent of technology and web development. It is a very specific process for looking at the user's point of view, developing multiple ideas from that user's point of view, and then prototyping to prioritize which ideas are most impactful. So that's definitely built into the social design process. Lovely. So I'm still trying to understand the difference between creating and solving problems. Ah, I, love, I love that question. I have to credit a wonderful writer about creativity named Robert Fritz, who, who, who delineated this distinction. Problem solving is making something we don't want go away. Creating is bringing something that hasn't existed before into existence. And both of them are needed, but we 
also need to understand when each one is more appropriate. Only focusing on making problems go away keeps us sort of circling at the same level of thinking, right? We're not imagining a completely different possibility that could be lurking. And they require different kinds of time and different skill sets. That was a real aha for me. So thank you for that. That was a light bulb moment. (laughs) And with that, Cheryl, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So, Cheryl, again, I'm just loving this book because the concept, the principle of social design is new to me, and I just feel like a sponge absorbing all this great new wisdom. And you talk about how learning and playing are important, and that really resonates with me. But tell us uh, what your take is on that. Well, experimenting and play are part of the creative process, and you know, I'm struck by how you introduce the program, right? Enjoy work and love your life. Most of us are taught to to lock ourselves into a job and a job description and a hierarchy and an organization. This social design process wakes something up in people because they get to create and they get to play with ideas. The process of prototyping takes the stress off having to come up with the perfect answer. Social design is the opposite of that, right? It's, it's, it's try something and see what happens and then watch what happens and try the next thing. So it completely removes this, this typical corporate um, pressure we feel not to show something until it's completely perfect, right? You don't want to go in front of your boss. Even your boss in, in social design sessions is there coming up with ideas and, and, and building on other people's ideas. You know, it's interesting because I, I know so much of our uh, listening audience might be thinking, okay, I've got a strategic plan and it's a five-year look at the future, but this process is disruptive in a way, I think beautifully disruptive because you believe that plans don't always work. So how how might organizations be creative instead of just being planful for short and long-term? The most important step here is to have a very clear vision and to include in that vision all of the financial value and the social value that you want to create. And then to be completely open about the number of pivots it takes to get there. Plans don't work because everyone is required to be able to navigate ambiguity and navigate uncertainty. Industries are, are disrupted, families are disrupted, countries are disrupted all the time, right? Plans, if, if you rely on a plan, then you tend to be checking your progress against that plan and you can miss other opportunities that come up when we're paying attention to what's going on around us. 
You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned the word ambiguity. I, I work with a lot of uh, leaders in uh, the world of work, and they're interviewing using that question, saying, how do you handle ambiguity? It's no longer how do you handle change? So I'm, I'm delighted that you made that connection for our audience. Words are important. This is coming directly from your book, and you talk about so is language, including or excluding people. So help us understand what you mean by that, Cheryl, because we are in an interesting time in history that words matter. Words matter and they are abused probably more than they ever have been. Uh, there's a wonderful quote by uh, attributed to Confucius that I love, that towards the end of his life, he was asked what his first act would have been had he ever attained power in the empire. And he said, I would rectify the language and I would make words mean what they're supposed to be again. Wow. L language, the, the language that we use, its concreteness and its specificity and its clarity change people's worlds. They change the fate of organizations. They, they lead to people getting behind an idea and, and helping it be manifested or ignoring it. And when we, when we talk about physical things and we talk about things we know, we, we can use very concrete language. If you're commissioning an architect to build you a house, you don't say, you know, I, I, I want to feel good in it. You talk about how many rooms and what colors and what materials. But when we talk about our future, we only have platitudes and vagaries, right? We talk about peace or, you know, e even the conversation around climate change is so abstract that we don't know how to act on it. So language is the way to do that. It needs to be, any idea needs to be articulated in concrete language so that the action required to realize it is clear. And so that when you get there, you recognize it. So are we unknowingly excluding people? I think we unknowingly exclude people when we speak in our silos, when yeah. we, I'm sure it's the case for you. I, I speak to people in lots of different worlds. The acronyms alone will make you dizzy. You know, every, every industry has its own jargon. Every cultural group has its own jargon. Every generation has its own jargon. And so there is a, a lack of uh, awareness that if we want to include other people, it begins with using language that is accessible to them. Thank you for that. So Cheryl, you're in the trenches doing incredible work helping organizations impact social change through social design. So give us some examples, help the audience understand the great work you're doing. Well, the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus is a great example. I work with a CEO of the campus, and he has been for about 15 years using his position there to improve the neighborhoods around the campus and the city by looking at how to address food insecurity, how to um, how to help. He, he's made uh, partnerships with global energy companies to bring solar. Uh, power to the neighbors around him and using this this method of collective innovation with organizations and with individuals in the city to continually improve it and to continually extend the value that they're building 
You know, I'm sure there are so many listeners uh, globally who are tuning into this podcast saying, wow, I want to learn more about this. What are some of the obstacles that you've seen with organizations trying to adopt the principles, but what are some of the roadblocks that just might hang them up? There's two kinds of obstacles. One is this process can be threatening to people who want to protect their expert status. Mm. To, and you don't have to give that up, by the way. That's, a, that's a, an illusion. But it can be threatening to people who need to know what the next 10 steps are going to be. Right? This requires a trust of a process. It requires an opening to collaboration instead of a shutting down and owning information. So there are real emotional barriers to this. And, and in addition, there are some structures of organizations that just make it really difficult for people to collaborate. So that's one way, one kind of set of barriers. Another set of barriers is that at the same time that this is difficult, there's a, there's a conversation about it and there's hype about it that does not have any rigor. You know, there, it's possible to take a weekend workshop and come out saying, well, I know what design is. I can apply that. And, and in fact, this is something when, when we engage people and when we come to learn about people, when we go, I, I'm doing a project um, looking at youth exiting foster care and preventing them from uh, entering homelessness. Even talking to vulnerable people affects them, right? Yeah. And so there is a great deal of rigor and, and care and responsibility that comes with this wherever it's being practiced. Cheryl, is there a connection to the openness of, or should say, I should say, willingness to fail forward, right? We're going to try something. It might not work, but what we learn is priceless. It, it's, of course it is. Absolutely. And it's interesting because people have asked me, you know, well, do you, do you teach failure? And what we teach is that it's feedback, right? Yeah. One of the stories in the book, Josh Trehoff was a, a student in our graduate program. He came to the graduate program because he tried to start a business and it didn't take off. And he, he, what I love about him is he didn't say, well, I failed. He thought, well, you know, that was learning. Yeah. And the number of times he, he set up feedback loops with direct response. He was trying to get people to stop wasting food. Of course, they don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to hear that, right? But he never got discouraged. He was like, okay, that was learning. Let me go on to something. And he ultimately found it. So without being planful, but perhaps being creative, Cheryl, tell me about your ideas for social design moving forward. Well, the book has come from my personal work with entrepreneurs and also from about nine years of having designed a curriculum for this graduate program. And what I have learned, unanticipated, because I couldn't, you, you can't see it until you actually see what what people, how it changes people in long haul. This is a, a, a practice that improves the capacity of people to create and to collaborate. And so I want to, I want it to spread. I want to see people in big organizations. I want to see inner city uh, youth. I want to see this being made accessible to everybody because Designers wake up every day with a sense of optimism, right? Because we, we know we, we can create something new. Um, and we always have a sense that I can make today better or I can do something that's going to be really fulfilling to me. And that's not the purview only of designers. Other people can have that and use that. 
Cheryl, I've learned so much from you today. Thank you for sharing this incredible idea of social design. And I want to remind our audience, the book is extraordinary. It's available, of course, in major book retailers and also Amazon online. And the title is The Intergalactic Design Guide, Harnessing the Creative Potential of Social Design. Cheryl, thank you so much, and I wish you continued success. Thank you, Caroline. It's my pleasure. And I wish you all the best and happy holidays. Thank you, my dear. You too. And to those listening, if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review. And let me tell you why. When you leave a review, it helps people find us online. And let us know what career-minded issues you would like for us to discuss on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And I always want to give a special shout-out to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck our Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, our Executive Producer. Thank you for the extraordinary work you do to make this show incredible for our audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.